0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, let's turn in our Bibles, shall we, to Acts chapter 19. What kind of power would it take to thrust something that weighs 4.5 million pounds... That's 184 feet tall into space. I'm talking about the space shuttle. Four and a half million pounds, and most of the weight, they say, is from the fuel tanks. The fuel needed to produce seven million pounds of thrust to push that huge, heavy object out into its 200-mile orbit into space now they say the space shuttle once it reaches its orbiting velocity is traveling at seventeen thousand miles per hour seventeen thousand miles per hour and they don't have to worry about traffic tickets or speed tickets. just cruising through space that is powerful to encounter something like that and to survive that you know they usually measure the effect of such power on the lives and bodies of the astronauts in terms of g-forces that's one of their measurements and it's that forces the velocity is taking those people out into space and what it does to the human body for instance when you're at about three g's if you experience that you can hardly move your arms or your legs because they're being pinned to the seat your ten-pound head feels like fifty pounds so it strains the muscles It's uh, uh, impairs the circulation of the body. The heart finds difficulty in uh, pumping blood into the brain and the body. In fact, at four to five G's, most people black out. You have to be specially trained and have the right equipment to deal with that kind of power. You're encountering raw power. Some years ago, I had my own power encounter with 220 volts of electricity. I was in Scotland, we were preparing for an event, and I got up to the microphone, didn't know it wasn't well grounded, and I touched the microphone with my lips, I collapsed to the ground, and then I said to my buddies, did you see that flash of light? And they said, no, but you almost died. Now we're going to read how Paul the Apostle in the town of Ephesus has encounters with spiritual power, good and bad, miraculous and demonic, how he faced it, how he dealt with it, and what lessons we can learn from it. We're going to spend this week and next week in a text of about 10, 12 verses right there in uh, Acts chapter 19. And as we read it, you might think, boy, this is an odd few verses to zero in on for two weeks. Why are you doing that? Because it's just such a weird story for a couple of reasons. Number one, it will show us how at Ephesus Paul made the foundational choice that he's going to go all the way to Rome, the heart of the Roman Empire. And number two, it shows us the kind of relationship that Paul had to spiritual supernatural power, good and bad. And it's going to bring up a few questions. Number one, the question of miracles. What are we to make of miracles? Can we expect them today? Are they only for apostolic times? Number two, the demonic powers that existed at the time of Paul. Are we to take that seriously today? Are we to be scared of that? In other words... Does the hidden reality of the supernatural world have any effect on our visible reality as we walk and move and work and drive in our culture? So let's go back to Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, and we'll read our verses. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick And the diseases left them, and evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit that when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia... To go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now, Paul is in Ephesus, a city famous for two things. Number one, the Temple of Diana, the largest building in the entire Greek world, considered one of the seven wonders of the world. Diana was worshipped there. Number two, Ephesus was famous for the occult, magical practices. They found little things called magical papyri, little pieces of writing material that had incantations and spells because the worship of Diana and occultism were closely related. So Ephesus was famous for both of those things. Now, we jumped right in the middle of Paul's being in Ephesus. He's in Ephesus longer than any other place he visits. And without reading it, the verses before it, we know what Paul's style was. He goes into the synagogue first and he preaches. He always did that, right? Because the gospel was to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. So he goes into the synagogue and he preaches it up. He's a lean, mean preaching machine. That's his style. They don't like it. They kick him out. There's a hardness of heart. And the Apostle Paul, for the next couple of years, rents a lecture hall, we're told from a guy named Tyrannus, a very unusual name. Tyrannus means tyrant. So we wonder where he got that name. Obviously, it was a nickname that either his parents gave him or his students gave him. But nonetheless, Paul rented that, and for a couple of years, he taught people there. And then we come up to these power encounters. Now, what we're going to read this week and next week is four levels or four stages of spiritual power that Paul encountered in Ephesus. And this morning we're only going to look at the first two, which is supernatural activity and superficial authority. So let's go back now to verse 11 and zero in on and consider the supernatural activity that Paul experienced. Verse 11. Now God worked. And notice that he is always the source. Paul didn't work the miracles. Really, God did through Paul. God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul. If you have a new international version, it says God worked extraordinary miracles through the hand of Paul. Now, I laugh at that because I ask, well, what would an ordinary miracle be like? I mean, isn't... A miracle by its very definition, an extraordinary, unusual event. Of course it is. But it brings up a couple of mistakes people make when it comes to miracles. Mistake number one, people sometimes tend to naturalize miracles. That is, they make them sort of commonplace events. They degrade the very definition of what a miracle is. People will say... Every time a baby's born, that's a miracle. No, it happens every day. It's not a miracle. It's a a regular, I guess you'd call it. Every sunset is a miracle. Every sunrise is a miracle. Every time you find a parking place at Dillard's during Christmas time, that's a miracle. That might be. But a miracle, by definition, is an extraordinary event by which God intervenes into natural law. So it's an exercise of divine power for a divine purpose. But sometimes people degrade and lower the very definition by saying things are miracles that aren't really miracles. That's mistake number one, to naturalize them. Mistake number two that people often make is to trivialize them. You know, explain them away. Oh, well you get naive, superstitious people having to explain something they don't understand and they'll say it's a miracle. And these are people who like to see themselves as more enlightened than the average Christian who is so naive and so lame that they believe in miracles. Now, that's as old as the hills. The ancient philosophers like Celsus, whose library was in Ephesus, or Apollonius, or Porphyry, and others, including modern philosophers, Love to explain miracles away, which I can understand. You know, for, for an unbeliever to try to explain away a miracle, for an atheist or agnostic, I can understand the source. But what really grates at me is when people who claim to be Christians, believers, followers of Christ, feel like they've got to help God out and lower his power to the level of a human being and say, it's not really a miracle, it's simply an interpretation of a natural event. So they trivialize it. For instance, if you were to read some liberal Christian scholar's view of the Red Sea event, you might read something like this. Well, you know, the Red Sea didn't really open up and the children of Israel didn't really go on dry ground. What really happened is there was no Red Sea where they were, but there was the Sea of Reeds, R-E-E-D, the Reed Sea. And it's, a, it's an area down in the Egyptian peninsula that can um, fill up with water and can abate from time to time. And the children of Israel waded through in the marshy, reedy ground from one side to the other. So it's no miracle at all. They just waded across. Which to me makes an even greater miracle. That the entire Egyptian army could drown in 18 inches of water. (laughs) My goodness, what a miracle that is. But it doesn't stop there. There's even commentators. And some taters, I guess, are more common than others. But there's commentators of the New Testament. Sorry about that. <laughs> Who'd love to explain the miraculous away. William Barclay is one of them. I love William Barclay's comments. I've lo- grown to appreciate them over the years, but it's funny how this guy interprets the miraculous. For instance, Barclay's comments on the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with the loaves and fishes. This is what he says. There's really no miracle at all. The truth is... Everybody brought their own lunch. But they were selfish. They didn't want to take out their lunch and eat it because somebody else might see it and they'd have to share it. So they hid it. Until a little boy had enough love and faith to share his meager little lunch with Jesus and everybody saw it and felt so convicted they took their lunch out. That's how he explains that miracle away. Barclay goes on to explain the miracle of Jesus walking on the water in a very humorous way. He says that night that Jesus was walking on the water and came to the boat where the disciples were, what really happened is the boat the disciples were in was taken by the wind to the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee where the water was lapping up and there's this shelf of sand and Jesus was simply walking out in the surf. On the sand, six inches ankle-deep water. And it appeared, because it's nighttime, maybe a moon is out there, but you see very dimly. So to the apostles in the boat, it looked like Jesus was walking on the water, but he's really walking on the sand a few inches under the water. (laughs) Again, it's a great miracle, because Peter said, Lord, if it's really you, bid me to come. He started walking on the water, and then he started drowning, what, in the sand? Here's the bottom line. Why do we ascribe to man so much power? Here we are, we can thrust a space shuttle up 200 miles. But we can't ascribe to God that kind of power. The truth of the matter is, God, who initiated natural laws, can at any time he chooses, intervene in or supersede natural law. And when he does that, we call it a miracle. For God, it's simple. But for us, it would be a miracle. Here's an example. Four and a half million pounds of anything on the ground, space shuttle or not, four and a half million pounds. The law of gravity demands that thing ain't going anywhere. It's staying on the earth. The only way you can get it up into space is to Not take away the law of gravity, but to supersede the law of gravity by enacting other laws. You enact the law of thrust and aerodynamics. And together, if you put enough in that pot, it'll get that thing up. Even though gravity demands it stays. You simply supersede the law by enacting two other laws. So it is with a miracle. God creates the world. He superintends the natural world. But at any time he chooses, he can intervene in the world he created and supersede his laws with his own. I had a friend who lived down the street from me years ago who had a model train set. He loved trains. His whole basement, you know, was, was a city with a train in it. He spent all of his waking hours, I think, in that basement. He had little mountains in it and, and uh, buildings and people and cars and this train set. And he would set it up and move a distance away from it with the remote control And he'd be making the train go through. But every now and then, my friend would step into the middle of that train set and reach his hand in it and pick up a building, a car, or a train that had been derailed, set it back on its track, and then step back out. He had that prerogative. That's how I simplistically see God working a miracle. He steps into the world he created, all the natural laws that govern it on a daily basis, and any time he chooses for his own purpose, intervenes in or supersedes natural law by enacting his own higher set of laws. So here's Paul the Apostle in Ephesus, but it still says that he worked unusual miracles. So what would that be? I mean, if all miracles are unusual, all miracles are extraordinary, what does it mean that he did extraordinary, unusual miracles? I can only surmise that up until this point, he did something that had never been done before. You know, usually in the book of Acts, when a miracle is done... An apostle will walk up to a person, lay a hand on a person, speak the name of Jesus to that person, so that it's unmistakable where the source is. And even though that's an unusual event, that's the usual manner miracles were performed. But here's what makes it unusual. Verse 12. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and diseases left them. So, clothing that Paul had on his body became like a spiritual conveyor of power. It's sort of funny. Allow me to tell you this. I have in my files a number of letters I've received over the years from healers, televangelists. And a few of them are actual handkerchiefs. And they, they will quote this verse. Just like Paul gave out handkerchiefs and people were healed, you put this handkerchief on your body, hallelujah, I prayed over it, I've anointed it, and if you send in your money this week, you'll be healed by it. (laughs) You know the routine. And I read those letters where they say, I prayed over it, I anointed it, and I say, but did you sweat in it? You go, huh? You see the word handkerchief? It's literally a sweatband. The term handkerchief is the Greek word, Sudarion, it was a face cloth that was used to wipe off perspiration. Why did Paul have that? He was a tent maker, that's why. He had an apron around his body and a sweatband around his head. And these were stinky, gnarly, smelly, dirty clothes. And for anybody to get healed by that is unusual. Wouldn't you agree with that? So those are the handkerchiefs and the aprons. Now this is unusual. Unusual. But it is similar to the woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years and she couldn't get healed by doctors. And as Jesus was walking through a crowd one day, this woman said in her mind, If I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And as soon as she did touch the hem of his garment, remember what happened? Not only was she healed, but Jesus stopped. And he said something very unusual. Who touched me? And the disciples said, "Uh, Jesus, you're in a big crowd. Everybody touched you. No, I perceive power has gone out of me. The touch of faith Jesus recognized. Or it's sort of like the time when Jesus took some dirt in his hand and spit in it and rubbed it and made a little mud ball and put it in a guy's eye and said, now go wash that out and you'll be healed. Was there anything mystical and magical about that mud ball? Was there anything mystical and magical about the hem of Jesus' garment? Or the sweatbands of Paul? Or in Acts chapter 5, the shadow of Peter that passed people by and they were healed? No. These in and of themselves were not repositories of miraculous virtue, but rather points of contact whereby people could release their faith. See that woman said, "I know that if I touch the hem of his garment I'm going to be healed." As soon as she did, she released her faith in Jesus cooperated with God's sovereign will will to heal her, and she was healed. And so it is with these sweatbands. They authenticated Paul's apostleship, and they were very unusual. Now another question arises at this point. Okay, that was then. What about now? Are miracles for today? Is this just an early church thing? Or, Or you might say this. Boy, when I read the book of Acts, and then I live my life in Albuquerque day by day, two different worlds. I read the book of Acts and I find all sorts of miracles. I live my life, I have traffic jams. So is this just an apostolic thing that happened, but we can't expect to see any of them today? It's interesting, if you were to read through the book of Acts you will discover about 30 miracles recorded in the book of Acts alone. It's a lot of miracles. You might walk away thinking, a miracle happened all the time. What you may fail at that moment to realize is that you are reading an account of events that happened all over the Mediterranean world over a period of about 30 years. That averages to be about a miracle per year somewhere in the Mediterranean world. I think we see that. I don't think that's just something that was during apostolic times. And long after the apostolic era, responsible people recorded the ongoing frequency of the miraculous. Here's a few of them. Irenaeus from A.D. 130 to A.D. 200 wrote, quote, Others still heal the sick by laying their hands upon them, and they are made whole. Yea, moreover, as I have said, even the dead have been raised up, and they remain among us for many years. Close quote. That's long after the apostolic era. St. Augustine wrote in A.D. 354 to A.D. 430, that's when he lived, he wrote the uh, book, and one of them was called The City of God, that's really what he's known for. After seeing many miracles, Augustine wrote, What am I to do? I cannot record all of the miracles that I know. Then move a little bit closer to now. In the 1500s, Martin Luther had a good friend, Philip Melanchthon, it was his assistant, who lay sick, almost dying, lost consciousness. His eyes were fixed. He couldn't hear, he couldn't see. And he was on his deathbed, and Martin Luther walked in Melanchthon's room and prayed and cried out to God. This is Luther's own account. And Luther wrote up on the wall, or put up on the wall, a scripture, Psalm 118, verse 17, that read, I shall not die, but shall live and declare the works of the Lord. According to Luther, his friend was instantly healed. That's very much post-apostolic, post-Book of Acts. So... Do we see Him today? Yep. Especially in places that closely resemble the conditions that we read about in the first church. But keep in mind, it's nothing you produce. It's divine power for a divine purpose. Anytime God wants to step into the train set and move a car, He can. But for you to wake up and go, I'm going to claim and expect my daily miracle not a miracle. That'd be a regular. God does it for his own purpose whenever he wants to, and unusual miracles happen by the hand of Paul. Well, let's move on from that unusual miracle, the supernatural activity, to something else, undeniable might. Look also in verse 12. It says, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. And also, verse 13, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Now, what are these evil spirits? They're demons. They're devils. They're malevolent, fallen angels. Now, some of you here, in hearing that, might go, for real? I mean do you really expect me to believe literally in demons? Yep, for real. For real. And Satan would love nothing more than for you to think he and they are not real. You know why? Because no enemy is as dangerous as one you can't see and you believe doesn't exist. As long as you believe there isn't a devil, there aren't demons, there isn't this part of the spiritual reality, and for them to really exist, he's got you. He's got you. Now, just like there's a couple mistakes people make about miracles, there's mistakes people make about demons. One mistake is obsession, and we're about to read about that in a few moments and on into next week. There were some who were obsessed with devils. The other mistake, the most common, is to deny them. To sort of like miracles. Yeah, it's just dumb people's way of saying something bad happened, right? It's the devil. And so if you ask most people today about demons or the devil, they in their minds will think back to some comical spoof like Saturday Night Live. Remember Dana Carvey's church lady? Could it be Satan? You know, it's just become a joke. The devil. Demons horns tail devil with the red dress on etc all the songs that come out of that there were two six-year-old boys that were talking about the devil and one said i don't believe in a devil the second one said you don't believe in the devil the bible says there's a devil all the way through it and the first one said yeah but you know the devil's sort of like santa claus he really turns out to be your dad (laughs) thank you very much most people are are there in that camp denial of that part of spiritual reality but listen to the words of jesus luke chapter 10 he said and i quote i saw satan fall from heaven like lightning in other words i was there when he happened well Supposing that's true, and we know it is because Jesus said it's true. What is the devil doing today? His primary work? Deception. Deception and distraction. If he can get people so distracted and deceived, so they didn't even think about their spiritual life, about heaven, hell, eternity, any of that stuff, his job's perfect. It's done. Jesus put it this way when he gave that parable of the sower and the seed. The word of God is sown. And as soon as some people hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in their heart. And you can see it when you share the gospel or you preach a message or you witness to somebody. As soon as you talk about Jesus or spiritual things, boom, they turn off instantly. devil snatches the word away. Dwight Lyman Moody used to say, I believe in the devil for two reasons. Number one, because the Bible declares he exists. Number two, because I've done business with him. And anyone who's a believer has done business with the devil. And it's not a pleasant business encounter, is it? Now, notice something in verse 12. You see it also appear in verse 13. It says, evil spirits, plural. Not one, but there's more than one. Spirits, plural. It brings up this question. How many evil spirits are there? Answer, a whole bunch. How's that for a good theological answer? A whole bunch. Now, we don't know exactly how many, but we know that when Satan fell, and Jesus said he saw it, a whole bunch fell with him. A third. Revelation chapter 12, it says of the devil... The devil drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And you read a few verses down, verse 9, same chapter. It equates the stars that have fallen with demons. I'll read it to you. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast with him. So a third were cast out of heaven and fell with Satan. A third of how many? I don't know exactly. But I do know that when John in Revelation 5 looks around heaven and sees the angels that are singing worship, he says, I saw 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. hundred million. So if those are the angels that are left over, the two-thirds, then one-third would be a whole bunch. A whole bunch. And usually, unfortunately, that's where people get obsessed and we're going to read about that with these next few guys. Is people talk about the power of the devil. The devil's here. The devil's there. Hey, only a third fell. It means two-thirds, a majority, are still on your side. Besides having the Holy Spirit living within you, Jesus and the Father living, you got it covered. A third fell with Satan. Now... These evil spirits form a highly organized network. They're not just randomly doing their own thing, they follow strict orders. Listen to Paul, Ephesians chapter 6. We struggle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers, and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Those are, in the Greek language, military rankings. They follow an organized system. They take their orders. They move very, very precisely. And all of them hate you. All of them are your enemies. And you know what? That's good news. You're thinking, oh, this isn't good. That's not. It's good news. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. I would much rather have the devil as my enemy than as my friend. Listen, if you're going to have any relationship with the devil or demons at all, you want them as your enemies, not your friends. Now, if you haven't given your life to Christ, you are their friends. You're right where they want you. Once you give your life to Christ, because you love and align yourself with the very one they hate, God and Jesus Christ, you're an enemy. And that's precisely the relationship you want. So, Paul encounters this spiritual power. Now, before we close, we have just a few minutes to touch on the second part of this, and that is the superficial authority. Look at verse 13. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you. Notice it's an O, not an E. They're not making them do exercises. Okay, demons, 20 push-ups right now. No, they're exorcising and they're casting them out. In the name of the Lord Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were also seven sons of Sceva, or Siva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. Now, remember I said that Ephesus was a center for the magical arts. Exorcism was a common trade. These are itinerants. Can you imagine spending your whole time chasing demons? No, thank you. But they did it. We'll talk more about them next week. But a few years ago, I got a phone call here at the church, and I didn't quite know what it was, but a guy was shaking on the other end of the phone, and he said, Do you deliver I said, what? Do you deliver? I thought he was looking for a pizza place, honestly. I said, what are we supposed to deliver? Do you deliver Christians from demons? He was so obsessed with the devil coming in and taking control of him that he was calling anybody who would help him out with that. Now, I do believe in having authority over the spirit world, but I'm not going to chase him. These were itinerant exorcists. Also, in verse 14, notice seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. Now, you know what a PK is, right? It's a preacher's kid or a pastor's kid. These are seven PKs, priest kids. Their dad was a chief priest, probably in Jerusalem. That's probably what it refers to. Now... These kids must have been very bored and very disobedient because the Old Testament law, both in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, strictly forbids moving into the realm of spiritism like they were. However, the Jewish Talmud says that as time went on, more and more Jewish men became exorcists and got into this forbidden realm. In fact, and I just found it out this week, that... It was required of every member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the high court in Jerusalem, to be familiar and have a great working knowledge of the magical arts. Because they may have to try a case against somebody accused of dabbling in that and they have to know it. So probably what happened is this guy, this priest, who had to have this working knowledge of magic, that his kids, growing up in a religious home, seeing what dads involved in, got very interested in that occultic kind of knowledge. Which to me raises a truth and a warning. And here it is. Those who grow up with spiritual things ought to be very, very careful. And here's why. When you grow up in a home where you have a lot of the Bible and a lot of Jesus and you always go to church, you become so familiar with that that it becomes routine, not real. And anybody who tries religion gets very bored with it very quickly. Religion might be enamoring at first, but you get very bored with it. And after a while, you you say, I want something real. I want to encounter something authentic, real. I want power. I want to see it. I want to encounter it. That's what happened to me. I grew up in a religious home. When I was a teenager, somebody told me about spirit writing and astral projection and all sorts of weird spiritual things. And I said, I want to do that. And I did it. And you know what I discovered? It's real. It works. It works. It was powerful and kids long to experience authentic power i dabbled in it but i remember coming to the point where i just thought this way okay if there's this much power on the wrong side how much power is there on the right side that was the tipping point for me but not for these seven sons of skiva they were very superstitious They're using the name of Jesus sort of as a magical charm. It's interesting. They're invoking the name of a Messiah they don't believe in, preached by a guy they don't support. But for them to speak the name of Jesus was to use an enchantment, a charm. Hey, whatever works. It's not that different from people today wearing a cross who aren't Christians. It's a nice symbol. And, you know, if there is a God, I could score some points with a big guy because I'll wear a cross. I've had people say that to me. You've got to always be sure. Cover your bases. That's just wearing it superstitiously. So I like to ask people of crosses, hey, do you love Jesus? Why do you ask me that? Well, you've got a cross on. But some people wear it like this superstitiously. So we'll cover more next time, but these two points, supernatural activity... And superficial authority bring up a couple of points I want you to walk away with. Number one, you have a real enemy. You're in a battle. Number two, though your enemy is very powerful. Christian, you have a much more powerful commanding officer. And we ought to focus on that fact. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Number three, God has no distant relatives. You know what I mean by that? We like to say God has no grandchildren, no nieces, no nephews, only children. As many as believed in him and received him, to them he gave the rights to become children of God. God has only children, no grandchildren. You can't say, yeah, it's the Jesus that my grandma believed in. It's the Jesus that my dad told me to follow. You need your own relationship with Him. Fourth and finally, God has a work He wants to do through you. Just as we read that God worked unusual miracles through Paul, God wants to do some unique work through you. For you to be able to do that, you need God's power. You know what the most frustrating thing in the world is? Is to try to live the Christian life in your own strength. It's not hard. It's impossible. But to live with the power of the Spirit is a whole new level. A few years ago, the Rose Parade in Pasadena every year, New Year's Day, there was a float right on the main street there that sputtered, and it ran out of gas. And they discovered there was no gas in the tank. So now you have a float that breaks down because it runs out of gas. And every other float is backed up. The whole parade is stopped because of this float. But here's the real kicker. That float was the standard oil company float. (laughs) Go figure, right? Here's a float that represents a company that has vast resources of gas and oil. It runs out of gas. And here we are sons and daughters of the living God with all of the vast power of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as He would sovereignly work through our lives. And so often we run out of gas, don't we? So we need to, as Paul said, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. So we do His work with His power. Let's pray. So oh, what a delight it is to be in sync with your will, to do your work your way, because with that is your power. There have been too many endeavors that we've been involved in, Lord, or we have grown weary in well-doing because maybe they really weren't your endeavors. Or we tried to do them in our own power rather than yours. We have an enemy, we know that. But Lord, you live in us. You are all powerful. We definitely need to take it seriously, but we don't need to be scared. I pray that we would operate in your power for your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. (music)